Due to the subject matter, we advise that children under the age of 12, or those of a sensitive nature, should turn off now. Hi and welcome to the Murder Tales podcast, where we look into the minds and crimes of murderers and serial killers. My name is Chris Britton, and each episode I'm joined by the creator of the Murder Tales series of books and criminal historian H.N. Lloyd, or as we know, Lloydie. Hello. How are we doing? Okay. Yes. How are you? I'm very good, and happy birthday, by the way. Oh, thank you, thank you very much. How's the How's the knee? Well, after I explain that, I've had an operation. This is why we had a uh, we've had a few weeks off in between uh, the last episode and now. Uh, so I've had a bit of surgery on my knee. Um, yeah, it's getting better, a lot better. Good. Still good. on crutches, still not very mobile. So this gives me a good chance to actually fill my day editing <laughs> over the next week. Um, okay, right. So it's time for a classic case now isn't it uh as we get to this part of the series it's a classic case so we are going to go right back aren't we for this one yeah this is um this is a case which which uh dates back to the 1940s and 1950s it's a, a case which at the time was really explosive it gripped the nation and it caused Real legal problems for the British establishment for nearly 50 years. The, the way to tell the story is, I think, we need to tell it in its separate elements, don't we? We can't just go ahead and just talk about the the main perpetrator yeah. straight no, away without giving you an understanding of the history and the background. Yeah, normally, uh, regular listeners will know that, that I like to try and take these things in a very chronological order, because that is always seems to be the best way to do it. With this case, it, it's really difficult to do that. Um, and as you listen, you, you, you'll understand why. So, Lloydy, away you go. OK, so our story begins on the 30th of November 1949 in the little Welsh village of Murphy Tidville. A man who had grown up in the town walked into the local police station and asked to speak to an inspector. He was told that an inspector wasn't available, and so he decided to have to make do with a constable. And when he was asked what the problem was, he said that he'd done away with his wife. Now, obviously, the police constable was incredibly intrigued by this, and they they took uh, Evans in for an interview. And he basically said that his wife had fallen pregnant. They couldn't afford the extra amount to feed. And so that he had given uh, his wife an abortive remedy, but it had killed his wife. And he'd panicked and he'd hidden her body in a storm drain that was in the front of his house in Notting Hill. So marital disputes um, and the, there are cases of violence in homes where women are the victim of their husbands. It's not very common that they would hand themselves into the police let alone go from all the way from Notting Hill to Murphy Tidville. Yeah, 
Now, the man who'd gone to the police was, was Timothy Evans. He had grown up in Merthyr Tidville, although he'd moved away in 1935. He'd then grown up in, in London. At the time, Notting Hill it wasn't the, the rich and fashionable place it is now. In fact, at the time, Notting Hill was one of the worst, most run-down areas of London, where property was extremely cheap. It was, it was slum territory. Evans was an inveterate liar. He couldn't help but lie every time he opened his mouth, and it got him into terrible trouble all the time. He was also pretty much illiterate. He'd missed most of his schooling because he developed tuberculosis when he was a child, and this then developed onto an ulcer on his foot, and he spent much of his childhood in hospital because of that, and it also stunted his growth. So he was a very small man with little man syndrome. When he, he, he eventually met his wife who was a lady called Beryl. The marriage was quite dysfunctional. There was adultery on both sides. At one time, Evans, at one point, the couple tried to have a, uh, what we'd now term an open marriage, and they moved a, a third party in, into the marital home. This didn't work out, and, and the, the lady quickly left after just spending one night with the dysfunctional couple. In 1948, the couple did have a daughter, Geraldine. What can't be denied is that Timothy Evans doted on his daughter. He, he was said to be very kind, very caring, very paternal towards his daughter. It seemed to be the, the, the one person in the world who, who he didn't lift his finger to. Uh, so, so he wasn't a very nice man. He wasn't a, a man to easily get along with Timothy Evans. Yet, because of what happened, he's a man who is, is looked back upon with extreme sympathy. So without going too far into it, so great sympathy. Obviously, domestic abuse and domestic violence can materialise in certain ways. You've said, obviously, that there were violent outbursts and arguments between the two. Was there a pattern to what caused this? Well, like a lot of these things, alcohol was 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 a an enabler to his violence. He would drink to excess, become disinhibited. It would lead to violent outbursts. He also caused problems in the marriage himself by being a, 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 an addicted gambler. He would spend most of the money he earned on betting. Now, at the time, obviously, it wasn't as easy to bet as it is now. Off-track betting was effectively illegal, and you had to go to illegal bookmakers to place bets. Uh, and that meant that, that Evans was also uh, hanging around with and associating with some quite dubious criminal characters. And obviously, this was a cause of stress within the marriage, which would be an instigator into the arguments, I presume. Yeah, the, 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 these uh, things, the lack of money, Evans not being able to hold down employment because he would he would be lazy on the job, he would lie, he would make up bizarre excuses to why he'd missed work, he would be sacked every five minutes, the family would have no money coming in, what little money they did, he would drink and gamble away. That would again cause stress and pressure in the relationship, it would lead to more arguments. The entire relationship was like a pressure cooker. It didn't help as well that the Evanses were always living in very cramped conditions. After Evans moved to London in 1935 with his, his mother and stepfather, he met Beryl not long afterwards. 
1947. They initially lived with Beryl's mother and father, but again, that didn't prove to be a, a good situation for them. I suppose it would be, because obviously if you're a newly married couple, being under the roof of your in-laws does make things a little bit different because you'll always feel as though you're a guest as opposed to it being your home. Especially if you're a man who can't open your mouth without lying and would tell stupid little lies which would be quickly caught out and which would annoy the people that you're living with and again caused a lot of problems early on in the marriage. So I suppose, yeah, you're obviously fairly immature in those aspects and you would expect them to step up. So after... Living with, with, with Bevel's parents for a short period, they then moved in with Evans's parents. And that's when they then got worse in, in 1948 when Beryl fell pregnant with Geraldine. It would have been completely impractical for them to for Evans and Beryl to stay living with Evans's parents in their small property. Yeah. And that's where they secured a flat in the Notting Hill area of London. And it was an address that was to become infamous in the annals of crime. 10 Rillington Place. Sounds like we need to take a break. And welcome back. Um, 10 Rillington Place. Right, let's not give too much away at this stage if uh, people aren't too familiar with it. But it is one of the most notorious addresses within true crime. But obviously, we're going to tell the story from the aspect of Timothy Evans. Just to move into this address with Beryl being pregnant with her first child, Charlie. Mm -hmm. So 10 rooms in place was uh, an end terrace house. And... It was fairly overcrowded. On the top floor, there lived an elderly man called Mr. Kitchen. The Evanses lived on the middle floor. And there was a, a middle-aged couple on, on, the, on the ground floor who kind of took the Evanses under their wing. The male on the bottom floor would often take Timothy Evans aside and give him advice if he'd been arguing with Beryl. And, and, and the, the, the lady on the bottom floor... She would often take Beryl aside, gives her cups of tea, give her comfort when Evans had beaten her up. So they, they appeared to be a very nice and caring couple. To be in that kind of flat, and you, you would hear every single argument, and obviously that's why there would be a lot more understanding dealing with those situations from time to time. So how long were they in the property before uh, before Geraldine was born? Well, uh, yeah, so it's a... They only lived in the, in the flat a couple of months before Geraldine was born in October 1948. So Evans and Beryl continue to argue. They continue to, to have instances of domestic violence. Evans would occasionally get work here and there, but wouldn't keep the job for very long. They were basically living hand to mouth, and it was very uncomfortable in the Rillington Place address. Things then became even more complicated in October 1949 when Beryl told Evans that she'd fallen pregnant again. Now, this was a child that they could not afford. And I suppose your options are fairly limited at that time as well. 
I mean, abortion was illegal at that time. If you wanted an abortion, you would have to go to dodgy backstreet abortionists, extremely dangerous. A lot of people fell seriously ill or even died at the hands of backstreet abortionists back then. And you're also talking post-war, so there's a lot of orphans as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and back then the, the adoption system wasn't as as, as, as rigorous and formalised as it is now. A lot of the time it was just adverting papers, uh, advertising children for sale. Yeah, and that's why there was such a scandal about 20, 30 years later where they discovered a lot of these children were given up to adoption or were orphaned, were shipped off to the likes of Australia to workers slave labour in effect yeah and it, they weren't just sh- shipped off uh, to us, uh, australia a relative of, of mine uh, um, my grandmother she w- was an orphan and, and she was sold to a farm in wales uh, where she was forced to work so this is the kind of conditions that people would be living in and would force their hand to make choices they would not necessarily consider mm-hmm and this kind of brings us back to Evans going back to Murphy Tidville and, and making that confession to the police. Because as his first confession said, he had managed to procure some potion to help uh, abort the unborn child and it had gone wrong. So the police obviously in Murphy Tidville contact the police in Notting Hill and they send police to Rillington Place. They find this uh, storm drain that Evans has talked about. And they found that not only did it take three men to move the cover, there was no body inside the storm drain. The police go back to to Timothy Evans and they say, look, there was no body in the storm drain. What what are you on, mate? So Evans basically then tells the police that the majority of his story was true. His wife had was pregnant they were really scared they wouldn't be able to afford the child but this time he used the words i can tell you the truth now i didn't kill my wife reg christie killed her now reg christie was the man who lived in the bottom floor flat in tenrillington place evans basically told the police that christie was a medical man he had certificates on his wall showing that he was medically certified and he'd shown Timothy Evans books with medical diagrams in. Now, remember here, Timothy Evans was illiterate, so he didn't know what he was looking at. All he knew is that Christie had pointed to some certificates on his wall and had shown him some books with some pictures of, of, of you know, diagrams of the human body in it. And Christie had said, I can help make the pregnancy go away. Go away and discuss it with your wife. So Evans and, and Beryl discuss it and they agree, yes, we'll let Mr. Christie perform an, an abortion. I suppose if they've trusted him so far with advice that he's given and he's a kindly neighbour, they're not going to question whether his uh, medical history no. is no. Uh, as accurate as he makes out. Mm. So... Christie tells Evans to go out for the day, and when he comes back, he says the problem will be gone. So Evans does just that. Except when he gets back home, he's met by a quite worried-looking 
uh, Reg Christie. He says to Timothy Evans, it went wrong. The abortion went wrong. It turns out that your wife had a septic stomach. And the medicine that he gave reacted badly with it. And she's dead. Uh, he then says she would have been dead in a few weeks anyway with a septic stomach. Evans is distraught. But then Christie says, you, you can get into a lot of trouble for, for allowing me to do this. The best thing you can do is, is go, go into hiding. And then so Evan says, well, what about Geraldine? And Christy says, don't worry. I know a lovely little married couple who will look after Geraldine. You just go. And that's when Evan has left London and made his way to Merthyr Tidville. You would find it very, very difficult to think that this is the right course of action. At the end of the day, it is an accident. And the way that Christie has made out that he would get in trouble, as opposed to Christie actually getting into trouble himself. There's obviously a huge level of trust that Evans has got in, in what Christie says and how he acts to also allow him to look after his daughter and find a home for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's quite... Um, it's quite an interesting relationship and dynamic yeah. that they have. Well, well, Timothy Evans w- was a man with, with, I suppose they could describe him as, as slightly vulnerable. He was a man with a very low IQ, a man who probably would have believed things he's told by a, a, a trusted, older, patriarchal figure, I suppose you could call Reg Christie. I suppose nowadays we would describe him as having learning difficulties. Yes, yeah, he probably would be on, on you know, somewhere on that, that spectrum of, of, of having a, a learning disability. He's trusting him over his wife, he's trusting him over his daughter, and he's trusting him what he's saying about going to, going back to, to Merthyr to, to basically run away. So he's now given another version of the, of the proceedings to the police. Mm-hmm. So how do they act upon this? Well, the police go back to Rillington Place and they carry out a search. Now, during the first search, they didn't find anything, but they go back a day or two later, and this time in the outhouse, they find Beryl's corpse hidden underneath the sink. What was worse, lying next to Beryl's body was the body of little baby Geraldine. Both of them had been strangled. At this point, Timothy Evans is transferred from Merthyr Tidville to London. And then Timothy Evans changes his story yet again. And he makes a statement which is now believed by most people who uh, study this case to be a confession which has probably been made out of duress. It's full of, of copperisms. It's structured in a, in, a, in a certain way, which when you see confessions which have been taken under duress, it has the hallmarks of, of that. And in this third confession, Evans confesses to murdering Beryl and Geraldine. He says that they had an argument. This time his temper got far too much for him. He ended up strangling Beryl and then he realised he was lumbered with baby Geraldine. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to cope and so he murdered baby Geraldine as well. Hang on, you just said strangle because prior to that he was saying about an abortion gone wrong. Exactly. So there was no, there was nothing administered which indicate that Beryl had taken anything to to abort the child. What was interesting, however, someone had had sexual intercourse with Beryl shortly before her death. Was she drugged at all? 
there was an indication that he may have used gas, but the, the, they're not too sure about that because of where it, murder actually took place. Because it took place in 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 the Evans's flat, that they they think he may not have of of gas this one, but he did he did certainly gas most of his other victims. Basically, what you said about the confession under duress, which element does the does the strangulation come in? Because obviously, prior to this, he hasn't he hasn't said anything about strangulation, but that's obviously something that he's been told. Yeah. Once the police have found the body, once the police that know that the the um, the modus operandi um, was strangulation, that's when you find that this third uh, confession is made with the the actual cause of death put in there. And um, was it a case of listen, we've got your bank to rights here, you're going to have to make a confession, or was this kind of we're going to force you into this because you've got nowhere to go? It was probably a case of old-fashioned policing whereby they kept Timothy Evans up all night without any sleep. They roughed him up. They made threats and then eventually forced him to sign a confession which they'd typed up. In other words, torture. Yeah. And it, th- this was this was standard policing at that time. So Timothy Evans has obviously confessed. We go to trial. We get to trial, at which point Timothy Evans changes his story yet again, but takes it back to, to the second statement, whereby he says Christy killed his wife. Now, Christy becomes the star witness at the trial. He goes into the witness box and a lot comes out that elicits great sympathy for Christy. First of all, it was the way Christy talked. Reg Christy spoke in a whisper. He would talk like that. And the reason why he spoke like this is because during the First World War, he'd been gassed and it damaged his throat. So for the rest of his life, he found it incredibly difficult to speak above a whisper. It then came out that during the Second World War, Christie had been a special constable and had served during air raids. He'd saved people during air raids. He'd been quite heroic. Whilst he was a special constable, Christie also received a head injury uh, during one air raid. And as we've discussed in previous cases, there is quite a correlation between people who receive head injuries and then them going on to commit violent crimes. Now, everything was going well when it was the prosecution who were questioning Christie. When it came for the defence to cross-examine, an entirely new light was put on Reg Christie. The defence brought out the fact Reg Christie had multiple convictions for theft offences and had been to prison uh, for theft offences and fraud. Not only that, he had once attacked a prostitute with a cricket bat, causing her to have severe head injuries. When he was a police officer, he had been such a nuisance in the local community he was given the, the, the nickname the persecuting council. Christie was an inveterate racist and also had a history of, of mental illness and being treated in what they termed at the time asylums. Was there any question about his medical capabilities, especially with Evans trying to implicate him in the crime? It came out that Christie was a member of the St. John's Ambulance 
And he did have some St. John's ambulance textbooks, which did have pictures in it of, of, of a medical nature. But he's not a doctor. Yeah, he's not capable of performing an abortion. No, he was in no way medically trained. He was simply a first aider, as we'd call them now. So based upon, obviously, this defence, which was the Sat Christie, was the light starting to, to move away from, from Evans? Or was the jury convinced he was the one who, uh, who murdered his wife and his daughter? The jury was completely convinced that uh, Evans was the killer. In fact, they just took 40 minutes to deliberate and to come back and to state that Evans was guilty of murder. At that point, there was only one sentence that was allowed in, in British justice, and that was the death penalty. And that was carried out on the 9th of March, 1950. And was it appealed at all? Um, was there an opportunity to appeal at the time? There was an appeal, but the appeal failed. You could only really appeal if, if there was new evidence, uh, and, and there wasn't in this case. Of a lot of these capital punishment crimes at the time, it's not as you would picture, say, in the States, somebody would be on death row for 20, 30 years before they're executed. I believe that it was a matter of months from when you were sentenced. It legally had to be done within three Sundays. So, yeah, no, these things happen very quickly. Usually, it traditionally had to be within three Sundays. In, in, in Evans's case, he was found guilty on the 20th of February and he was hanged on the 9th of March. So obviously he was seen guilty, but Reg Christie, we all know, and that's where things are going to change later on. Yeah. Three years after Evans's execution, it came to light that Reg Christie was Britain's worst post-war serial killer up to that point, which is, I think, something that we'll go into in the next episode. Oh, there we go. We're back to the cliffhangers again. So this is going to be a multi-episode, isn't it? <laughs> this, this is a, a case which is like, like a, a labyrinth. It really is. So it, I think we'll we'll get a good few episodes out of this one. Oh, that's fair enough then. Okay, so if you want to join us in the next episode, make sure that you like and subscribe us on wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. If not, you can go and tell your friends to do exactly the same on sorry, iTunes, Spotify, or even Amazon Music. And if you want to know a little bit more about this case, this is the only case which I've written about in, in multiple books. I initially wrote about it in The, the Mummy's Boys. But then when I was writing my history of, of, of uh, capital punishment, I realised it was such a seminal case in, in the history of capital punishment. I had to include it in, in that book as well. And you can find that on? Uh, they're all available on Amazon, either an ebook, paperback. And if you've got Kindle Unlimited, they're completely free to read. I think that's very important that we do come back to the capital punishment aspect because I know this is one of the seminal cases that we referred to on the reason why capital punishment should be abolished, which obviously we'll come into in later episodes. Lloyd, it really is a fascinating case and I'm really looking forward to the next episode. We will be back in a couple of weeks' time. So as I said, make sure you like and subscribe us wherever you are. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a nice five-star review? So all that leaves me to say is I've been Chris Britton and he's been H.N. Lloyd. Evening all. If you enjoyed the show please go onto itunes and leave us a lovely five star review and even better click on that subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts the murder tales podcast is based around the criminal history books by hn lloyd if you'd like to get your hands onto them you can click on the amazon link on our twitter page 
This show was presented, edited, and produced by Chris Brooke. It was created, written, and co-presented by the author H.N. Lloyd. Our theme was New World Order by Neil Roberts Music. The Mother Tales podcast is part of the P-Pod Casting Network. You can check out our other shows, such as the Pub Politics Podcast, or even the Tragical History Tour. All you have to do is go and search on your favourite podcast provider.